You hear that song? Isn't it nice and relaxing? Doesn't it make you want to just wade into a cool stream of water and offer yourself to the river monster? No? Just me? Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with fantasy author Anna Stevens. Her latest novel is The Stone Knife, the first in the new Songs of the Drowned trilogy from Harper Voyager. Anna and I discuss dealing with imposter syndrome, historical Italian longsword fighting, and why grimdark fantasy books should never be shelved in the children's section. So on that note, let's jump right into the interview and see what Anna had to say. Anna, welcome to the Fantasy Inn. I'm so glad you could make it on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure to be here. I think this is my first Fantasy Inn chat. So yeah, very excited. Fantastic. Yeah, we're happy to have you here. And uh, from a few interviews you did with our uh, arch frenemy, the Fantasy Hive, <laughs> I see that you, uh, yes, <laughs> I see that you recently ran your first D&D campaign, or uh, at least recently in terms of 2020 time. So what was that experience like as someone who'd already published multiple fantasy books? Because I know uh, a lot of people I hear, you know, they start with D&D and then that leads to them writing, but it seems like you kind of did it from the other direction. Yeah, sure. Um, and it's actually quite ironic that you would mention the Fantasy Hive because um, it's actually part of my pa- part of the party who I'm DMing for is uh, Laura Hughes and Bethan Hindmarch um, of the Fantasy Hive themselves. So it's those two, their partners, and then um, Taya Latham, author of the Song of the Ash Tree trilogy. So as you can expect with those five, it's absolute fucking chaos most of the, most of the time. Um, <laughs> because, I mean, I've played, I, I've played D&D or various RPGs probably for like 18 months, two years now. So I did come to it really late, but always as a player. Um, so this was the first time I was like, I kind of got some ideas for a campaign and everyone was like, yes, do it, do it. And it was only supposed to be, it was going to be like, a real taster for me as DM. So I was only going to do like three sessions. And then we kind of got to the third session and I was like, well, this story hasn't finished, has it? Um, So it then kind of projected and everybody everybody wanted to carry on playing, which was good. I'm not particularly good at being a DM, I don't think. I still have trouble with like stats and things like that. And um, I kind of went through a phase of as the as the party leveled up, I was just adding more monsters instead of powered up monsters. So then I was trying to wrangle like, well, I'm 12 goblins and you're five people. And it was like, I can't remember where all my goblins are. You know, so I, I don't know what they're doing. Um, so it's been, it's slightly frustrating in that sense, but that's like me as a DM, not really knowing what I'm doing. But the rest of the time, it is, it's just a huge amount of fun. Deeply unexpected things tend to happen every session. And I've learned a very valuable lesson about naming my NPCs, which is that never name them anything that your party can then take the piss out of or change <laughs> or give nicknames to or anything like that. Um, because I've got a very secretly nice, good drow 
that I named Astanax and has literally took them about 0.3 seconds before they renamed him Spandex. So I'm not, I'm not entirely impressed that they've done that and I am planning my righteous vengeance. I will say Spandex sounds like a lovely character. <laughs> he is a delight. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've, I've just started playing D&D recently as well, I guess earlier in the year uh, for the first time. And it's a ton of fun. Uh, it is. Hopefully yeah. we can get back into it. It's, it's been entirely remote, obviously, because 2020 mm-hmm. uh, and uh, two different groups and both have sort of been put on pause recently. But I'm hoping to get back into it. Yeah, I mean, as was the same, I mean, because we, we obviously we play online anyway because of various geographical locations, in the, including the fact that Taya is in the US and, and we're in the UK. But also, I mean, I've had to pause as for the last few months because I've had editorial deadlines and stuff like that. And it's, I'm, I, I've been, I was trying to justify, I'm just going to take like four hours out of my day in order to write the next session of the D&D campaign. Um, and then I was like, oh, no, actually, I need to edit 170,000 words. So I, I probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> um, yeah, but that I'm definitely seems like hoping, it's a little important. Well, you know, priorities. Um, but, yeah, I'm hoping I'm hoping to get back into it um, and maybe get a, get another session in this month, actually. Now that I've said it, I'm going to have to do it because Bethan will definitely hold me to it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, that sounds like a plan. Uh, well, apparently D&D isn't even your coolest hobby, and you've trained in historical Italian <laughs> longsword fighting. So how did that come yes. about? Yes. Um, the best thing about something like that is it's absolutely tax deductible as research. So um, <laughs> you can literally just go out and spend like a thousand pounds on kit and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, tax man. You don't actually get to, you know, you don't get a cut of this because it's all, I can write it all off. Um so I started seeing it on like fantasy groups and Twitter and stuff like that a few years back. And I did like, uh, I did a little bit of research, but not very much because I tend to just plunge headlong into these things. And somebody pointed me in the direction of my local club, which I hadn't, I didn't actually realize there was one in my hometown. So I found them and then they were actually running a taster like an introductory course. It was about six weeks long that was due to start a couple of months after I discovered them. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'll have a bit of that. So I signed up and they basically, they put me in a fencing mask. They gave me a synthetic dagger and they told me to stab my opponent in the face. And I thought, I think I'm going (laughs) to like this. (laughs) Um, so yeah, so that was, that was it. I basically just spent my life savings and I'm now obsessed. That's amazing. Uh, how, out of curiosity, how historically accurate is it to take your mask off in the middle of a fight? I saw uh, an interesting (laughs) photo on your blog. (laughs) It is. Um, I mean, I would love to say I was channeling Eowyn, I am no man, but actually it was a massive fucking accident. I was using somebody else's sword. And the the person I'd borrowed it from is a lot taller than me, which means that they'd had their sword custom made bigger. So all this stuff where you see people just picking up swords on the battlefield and carrying on fighting, unless they're regulation swords like uh, the Roman the Roman short sword, um, and they're all exactly the same length, that would never work because the balance is different, the length is different, all that kind of stuff. If you've got a custom sword, so anyway, I digress. I um. 
yeah, so I was use, I was using a friend's sword, which was a lot bigger than I was used to, and it was longer, and the cross guard was wider. And I, in a feat of just sheer brilliance that I still don't quite know how I managed, I got the cross guard caught under my own mask <laughs> and oh, no. kind of ripped it half off my head at the same time as my instructor um, smashed his sword into my face. And... <laughs> Oh my gosh, it hurt. It hurt a lot. I think I might actually have cracked my cheekbone because it was like three months later and I was still getting pain in it if I if if like I pressed where where the, it had bruised. So yeah, so after that I I rapidly made the decision that I was just going to spend the money and get my own custom sword so that so that I never have to go through that again. I had a wicked shiner. Uh, yeah, I uh, just from the picture alone, it looked bad. And oh, gosh, cracking your cheekbone sounds horrible. So <laughs> seems I mean, like I, money well spent. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's a fabulous hobby. I recommend everyone should try it. <laughs> <laughs> After that, a uh, resounding endorsement. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you too can, you know, look like you've gone eight rounds with Mike Tyson. Uh, well, taking things back a little bit, can you remember what first made you fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? Um, I mean, I first fell in love just with just with reading, reading anything. I was a voracious reader as a child. Um, it was I kind of grew up in a house full of books, and we used to go to the library every Saturday morning religiously um, as a family outing. So it was just it was all you know, books was our as much a means of entertainment and escape as the TV and probably more so, in fact. So I would just read anything I could get my little hands on when I was a kid. I mean, also, you know, a lot of kids' books are very fantastical in nature. So, you know, they've got talking animals and magic and, you know, stuff like that. So I think having read so much as a kid, that kind of gave me a grounding in, in fantasy anyway. And then I think when I was about nine, I read Dragonflight by Anne McCaffrey, which was probably a little bit too young, but there's nothing massively objectionable in Dragonflight. That was basically it. It was like giant dragons that you get to ride into battle. I'm like, why would I not love that? And, and yeah, that was pretty much it. After I read that, I think I devoured most of the Dragon Riders of Pan series. And then I just went looking for anything that was vaguely similar. And it's, um, it's kind of stuck with me ever since, you know? I mean, I, I, still, I, I still read historical fiction. I like historical fantasy. So when you, you take a known period, but then you add whatever to it, magic or whatever. And when I did my degree, I read a, I read a fair few of the classics. So I still like, you know, I still like picking up Dickens and stuff like that. Um, but I'm definitely team SFF these days. Yeah, I think I've uh, been team SFF for quite a while as well. Because uh, like you said, a lot of uh, books aimed at the younger audience are very fantastical in nature. Mm, yeah, I mean, Talking Animals is, is, you know, is an absolutely massive one. So, I mean, whether you were traumatized by Watership Down or not, just the, just the idea of Talking Animals is, is in itself fantastical and it, and it it's, you know, it's, it's such a complex story, but it ha just happens to be about rabbits. There's, there's not really anything much more fantasy than that, is there? I mean, obviously, wizards and magic and all that. But. 
the actual premise of Watership Down is is inherently fantastical because it's it's about something that doesn't have a voice being given a voice. And I think when I originally read it, I did not think of it as fantasy at all. But now it's kind of hard to see it as anything else. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that's the thing. You know, I mean, having read it as a kid, it was just it just made absolutely perfect sense to me, because as I said, there's you know so many kids books have talking animals or you know ducks in waistcoats or whatever so it was it was quite ordinary to have communicating animals and i've lost my train of thought i don't know where i was going with that but yeah fantasy (laughs) yes absolutely uh well uh, I know fantasy has all these different subgenres and everything, totally different classifications within it. But what are your thoughts on your writing being labeled under the grimdark subgenre of fantasy? Um, I mean, I, I never, I never set out to write grimdark. I didn't realize that I was writing grimdark. I never really expected to be labeled grimdark. I don't have a problem that I have been labeled grimdark, but it, I do sometimes wonder whether it would put off broader epic fantasy fans. But, you know, it is what it is, and, and grimdark is very much a sliding scale. People will say that I am grimdark, and other people will say, no, it's not horrific enough or, or whatever. So, yeah, it, it just, it's something that happened. I don't have a problem with it. I don't think my new series is grimdark, but again, it's it's basically what readers want to categorize it as. It's just nice to be writing in the epic fantasy genre and, and to be recognized as an author uh, in, in whatever capacity, really. Yeah, I can see that. Um, and I, I will admit, personally, Grimdark is probably the most nebulous genre for me specifically. Mm. Like, I, I really have no idea what it includes. Uh, I just know that for sure it always has some dark shit go down. And I will say that your books do have that. At least the stone <laughs> knife does. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, but, you know, I I just kind of set out to write about, you know, it's, it sounds very Samwise Gamgee, but I set out to write about hope in the midst of darkness. And, and you know, you can't really do that if you don't explore the darkness as well. It's kind of like the 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 good outcome is even better because of how bad it got. So if you're going to have hope, then, you know, you need to be the light in the darkness when all other lights have gone out, Galadriel. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so... Before we dig too much more into the stone knife, uh, again from your blog post, uh, kind of recapping 2019, uh, you mentioned that you have a tough time with imposter syndrome. So how do you manage something like that? (laughs) Okay, I mean, I would love to be able to give you like a a really well thought out, well-rounded, normal sort of response. Um, The truth is, that uh, my good friend Mike Evans, who also writes for the Fantasy Hive, has instigated this horrible, horrible rule called 50 push-ups, which is exactly (laughs) what it sounds like. Anytime I'm chatting to him and I say something about I'm not a good enough writer or I'm not as good as such and such a writer, blah, 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 he just screams 50 push-ups at me and I have to do 50 push-ups. So... (laughs) Theoretically, I should have an upper body like The Rock, but I have kind of, it has sort of taught me through repetition and vast amounts of pain, it has taught me not to say those things quite so much. So it has had a beneficial, you know, a a beneficial outcome. But, you know, aside from that, 
like I do still sometimes think it if Mike's listening to this he's going to be screaming 50 push-ups now but I do still sometimes think it and I think it's quite I think it's quite normal um I also think it is a good idea to stay humble because you know you can you can kind of you can go on Goodreads and you can look up your book and you can filter it for only the five-star reviews and you can read those and then you can feel like massively accomplished. But that is as dangerous, I think, as if you filtered for just the one-star reviews and read those because, you know, thinking you're a failure is as insidious as thinking you're the dog's bollocks, you know? So it's better to just kind of take the middle ground. And I think a little bit of humility and a little bit of modesty isn't so much a bad thing. Um, but when it goes too far into that one direction, that's when you have to kind of take action or, in my case, do 50 push-ups. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like that rule. That's, that's a good one. I don't think I've ever heard anyone have that approach before. <laughs> it is literally surprisingly effective. Um, because I mean, obviously he doesn't know whether I'm going to do them or not, but there's that sort of, there's that trust and friendship between us that if he says it, I know he's saying it for my own benefit and therefore I have to do it because it is for my own benefit. It sounds really bizarre, but Hey, it works for us. Yeah. And like you were saying, uh, I I feel like most people probably deal with imposter syndrome to a certain extent. And if you don't deal with it at all, that might be its own issue as well. Mm. But I mean, I guess the joke is kind of like, are you sure you really suffer from imposter syndrome enough to say you have imposter syndrome? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I'm also in, um, I'm also in an author discord channel with a bunch of authors from the US and Canada and Britain and Australia and New Zealand, which is really cool because if any of us are on deadline, someone is always awake because of the time zone. So we can be like, just nip into, uh, nip into Discord and be like, oh my God, I need to finish this book by 10 o'clock tomorrow. I'm never going to manage it. And there will always be someone awake to kind of cheer us along, which is great. But the downside flip side to that is that I am lucky enough to be in an author discord with some like immensely talented writers. So there will be occasionally they'll just say something and I'll be like, oh my God, I would never have thought to say that or do that or, you know, whatever. What the hell am I doing hanging out with people as cool and talented as this? which obviously is imposter syndrome. Yeah, I was going to say you're getting dangerously close to 50 push-ups. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, so I, I did actually, as a result of feeling that way myself, I have instigated the 50 push-ups rule in the Discord, which is quite hilarious because we do, we do get other authors who will just be like, oh no, I can't do this, I can't do that, this book's rubbish. And you'll get like four people from around the world just yell 50 push-ups in Discord, which is hilarious. <laughs> that's, that's wonderful. So I'm like, I'm probably really unpopular in that Discord now <laughs> because I keep making people exercise. Yeah, I will say this is one of the few instances of me hearing about Discord actually potentially making people more productive. Mm, yeah, definitely. I mean, we've got a variety of different channels in there. So we've got one that's called Sprint City, where um, you basically you go in and you sprint for 20 minutes and then uh, you post your, your word count for that 20 minutes. So when you have got people who are like, I need to get this draft in by the end of the week, 
you'll just see them pop up every 20 minutes in Sprint City for like six hours. And you can just watch as their word count ticks up, which is really good. And also it means that other people can jump into that channel and be like, oh my God, you're doing so well. You, you know, you're nearly there. Keep going. So yeah, but it's also a massive distraction. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, that's more my experience with Discord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of learned, I think, I think I lasted three days before I had to mute every single channel. Um, because <laughs> it was just, my phone was literally beeping every sort of 10 seconds. And I was getting glared at by my other half. He was like, what is your phone doing? I was like, oh, something. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. So now it's just nipping every, so like, a few times a day and just chat with the people who were there and then leave it alone again. That sounds like a good approach. Well, uh, we've sort of hinted at your book for a while now, but what is your pitch for The Stone Knife? Okay. I'm really glad that I knew this question was coming in advance because I hate writing pitches. Um, so you have done <laughs> me a favor because if anyone else asks, I now have cobbled together some sort of vague mutterings on the subject. So what I've got is in a world of spirits and shamanism with war on the horizon and everything you love being torn away, how do you weave a peace with the invaders who worship as gods, the very monsters that are a curse on your people? Yeah, you just came up Does with that. that. That's pretty good. Oh, yeah, yeah, that absolutely off works. Off the top of my head, literally, <laughs> just right now, <laughs> she lies. <laughs> well, I, I will say that normally when I ask people for pitches, uh, I kind of hope that they'd already had one and I'm not like making them do homework for the podcast or anything. No, you totally made me do homework for the podcast. Ah, well, okay, at least it's not 50 push-ups. <laughs> that is true. That is very true. I expect you to instigate this in the Fantasy Inn now. <laughs> world domination by way of 50 push-ups is my aim there we go well after uh spending so much time in the world of your first series the godblind trilogy what did it feel like to kind of branch out into something totally new at first completely terrifying um because i'd spent i'd spent a lot of time in the godblind universe you know i mean from the first draft of godblind to its publication was 13 years the trilogy has basically been a part of my life for, for nearly all of my adult life. So it was kind of like, these people are my best friends, they're my family, what the ones that are still alive are. And it was really sort of hard to give that up. And it was kind of, the Godline universe is safe because I know it inside out i know exactly what people are going to do how they're going to behave and what their world looks like so coming up with something new was really frightening because i didn't know whether i could do it i didn't know whether i had the ability to pull off the story that i wanted to tell but now that i'm kind of into it and i've been working on it for a couple of years now I, I really love it i mean i love the characters and i love the setting um and now it's more sort of a challenge rather than something that I need to be scared of. Um, and I feel like it's stretching my writing muscles because I'm, I'm writing in a slightly different way in this trilogy than I did to my previous trilogy. So things like description and the vividness with which I write, I tended to avoid stuff like that in my first trilogy. It was very lean. There wasn't a huge amount of description, but because because of the setting and the type of magic and stuff like that in the new series, 
I wanted to sort of reflect that slightly in the language. So that's been really interesting to sort of push a little bit further with the richness of description, but without sort of slipping into really flowery language. So yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a very steep learning curve, but I'm really glad that I pushed myself out of my comfort zone and decided to do it because I could have just written another Godline trilogy easily. You know, I could have stayed in that world. I could have, I could have written a prequel trilogy. I could have written a sequel trilogy. I could have written about a completely different one of the other countries in that world. But no, I decided that what I really wanted to do was was challenge myself and see whether or not I could tell a different story in a different setting. And yeah, I'm glad I did. I mean, it, it it's been tough. It's been really difficult, and I've spent a lot of time worrying that. The characters in the new series are just rehashed versions of characters from the old series. But I'm kind of hoping that that's something that every writer worries about. <laughs> Maybe it's just me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's just imposter syndrome. Who knows? Maybe it's just imposter <laughs> syndrome. Good point. Damn it. That's 50 push-ups. <laughs> <laughs> uh- well, like you were saying, I guess with uh, Godblind taking you something like 13 years for that initial book, what was it like for this series to, because I know you had a little bit with uh, the sequels to Godblind, having, uh, you know, the actual deadlines, having to turn something out in a year or so, uh, but this is a totally new world that you're building and you still have that turnaround time of just over a year or so. Yeah, so I started thinking about it in 2018. So I had a sort of a very vague idea of where I might go in 2018, which was, so in 2018, I was finishing edits for Dark Soul and drafting Blood Child. So I was sort of halfway between books two and three, while also trying to think up ideas for what came after book three. So I kind of developed some ideas and and just put some vague thoughts down on the page towards the end of sort of 2018. And then I drafted it. I did the first draft in 2019 in between Blood Child edits. And then it was reworked. I did some work with my agent on it. And then we pitched it to Harper Voyager. Uh, And then they picked it up. And obviously, we went through the the whole editorial process again. Um, So I definitely didn't have the same time and space that I'd had with Godblind. So there was an awful lot of cramming of research and you know, as I said, exploring this slightly different way to tell the story and how I was going to approach that. So I had to, I had to kind of cram all of that in into about 18 months, I think. So it was quite the deadline. Yeah, that does sound like a lot. Uh, and like you were saying with that research, uh, I mean, this, this seems like a very different sort of world from a lot of what I read in fantasy. So what sort of research did you have to do to prepare for writing this stone knife? So basically, I started off with thinking about what environment did I want to write in and what was the what was the main aspects of the story that I wanted to tell and I kind of quickly realized that if I was going to not write another goblin if I was going to challenge myself and push myself then that had to extend to everything so not just the themes but also the setting and environment and climate and stuff like that so I thought about where I could set it that wasn't basically a fantasy medieval Europe and I kind of went where, you know, I was like, could set it in a desert, could set it on an ice sheet, could set it at the top of a mountain, 
And in the end, I decided that I was going to go with uh, like a, a tropical environment. So I was going to go with like very thickly forested, sort of jungle, humid, monsoon season kind of a place. And then as soon as I decided that, I realized I knew absolutely nothing about that environment. Um, so, I mean, I, I've literally built the world from the ground up via research, which has literally started with what is the geology like of a place like this? What is the climate like? When is the rainy season? How long does the rainy season last? How does that impact people who live there? And then from there, so it was like once I had the actual physical world, then I had to start building societies and cultures on top of it. So um, basically everything you can possibly think of that would need to go into that kind of a world, I had to research because I didn't really have any native knowledge of it whatsoever. So what will kill you? What are the really, really cool ways to die in a rainforest? And how many of them can I cram into my book? <laughs> what will but you don't you? think of yourself necessarily as setting out to write Grimdark. <laughs> <laughs> totally not Grimdark. <laughs> but yeah, so it was really cool. So, it, you know, it was like I discovered that the, the manchineel tree is the most lethal tree in the world. And I was like, we're definitely having one of those in there. And what was the other one? Uh, the warrior wasp which apparently, according to an absolutely insane person who voluntarily was stung by one, it is apparently like being chained in an active lava flow. <laughs> That's how much That's it hurts when you get stung <laughs> by a warrior wasp. So I was like, we're definitely mentioning those as well. So yeah, so it was a lot of fun, but it was, it was also, it was really, really time consuming because I didn't know enough so I had to sort of research for a couple of months before I could start writing, which sort of put everything back a little bit. And then when I felt like I got enough of a framework, I started the first draft. But I was still researching at the same time. So every time I came across something that was really cool or something that I knew I could work in, I then had to kind of go back and retroactively fit it into the narrative. So there was a lot of rewriting that went on with the first draft because I was researching alongside drafting. Right. And so I, you talked a lot about the actual physical setting. Was there any sort of research you had to do to come up with some of the cultures that you populated that world with? Uh, yeah. So because because I decided to go with a, a sort of a tropical environment, I kind of looked at real world cultures that we've got at the moment. And I decided to go with something that was inspired by Central American civilization. So the, the Maya and the, um, the Aztec Triple Alliance. So then obviously I had to do an awful lot of research into them because what I didn't want to do was start importing real world religious aspects and spiritual aspects and stuff like that because, you know, obviously that way leads to cultural appropriation. And, and if I sort of jammed something in there that I thought sounded cool but was actually taken out of context, then that was something that I was very conscious that I did not want to do. So I did a lot of research into their historic civilizations and like agriculture and warfare and architecture and things like that. And I, I kind of, I incorporated some of those, but I made sure to stay as far away from the, the religious aspects as I could. And I actually based the shamanism on Celtic shamanism because I thought, you know, as a, as a white Westerner, it was safer to go with something from my demographic than, than, uh, from somebody else's and then once I'd got 
like a, a, I think it was the second draft, like a working draft. I got in contact with uh, an author and lecturer called David Bowles, who is a Mexican-American. And I asked him to do a sensitivity read for me because he's an expert in Mayan culture. So he went through and, and he was kind of like pointed out stuff where things weren't quite accurate or things were too close to the Mayan culture and that, you know, I was in danger of slipping over into appropriation, um, which was really, really useful because then I could obviously, I was like, those those things come straight back out again and I, and I either don't mention it at all or I change it to be something that is completely invented for the purposes of the narrative. So yeah, it was great. I mean, I've got like an entire shelf of of uh, historical references and the the Popol Vuh, which is uh, was probably pronounced incorrectly, so forgive me for that. But is the um, is one of the the Mayan collection of of myths and legends and and like religious stories and things like that. And then you know architecture and all that kind of stuff. It was it was really really fascinating. It's an amazing piece of history. So yeah, it was very cool. Yeah, and again, I, I'm just impressed that all of this effort went in like the span of 18 months or so. <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, it was as as I said, it was it was all fairly intense for quite a long time. But once you know, once the once the the grounding of knowledge was done, hopefully that means that the sequels will go a little bit easier because. I already know what to avoid and what to include. And, and I've already set the world with the first book. So hopefully there shouldn't need to be too much more world building that goes on. And, you know, obviously I've, I've still got all the research books that I used and, and the nine billion tabs that I saved in, uh, in my search history that I can refer back to <laughs> just to make sure that I'm not uh, doing anything wrong, so to speak. Well, Taking a brief pause from digging into the world side of things, I have to say I really enjoyed the fight scenes in the stone knife. Uh, and I believe mm, you have quite a bit you. of experience with martial arts yourself. <laughs> uh, I do, yeah. I, um, I started, um, well, I did, I did kickboxing for a couple of years back when I was 17, 18, I think it was. Um, and then I started Shotokan Karate when I was, well, it was in about the... Uh, I think it was in about 2000 that I started training. So yeah, so I've got a I've got a second dan black belt in in Shotokan karate, and then as as I've said, I've got the um, the Italian longsword as well. Although swords don't actually feature in the stone knife, but we do some dagger work and some unarmed combat in that as well. So that all contributes as well. Yeah, and I, I guess just I'm curious if your experience with martial arts is mostly sort of like this formal training environment. How do you translate that into the frantic life or death fights that you have in your books? I suppose I mean uh, back when I when I first started in karate, I, I did a fair I entered a fair few tournaments, and yes, you know I mean they're they're tightly controlled and and you're not allowed to do full contact uh, at least not in the UK anyway. You're not allowed to do full contact karate and obviously you know you you're wearing like gum shields and, and gloves and stuff like that but there's definitely you know it definitely kind of ramps up the adrenaline when you're actually in a competition so so obviously it's not like being in a in an actual fight and it, and it never will be but it kind of gives you a taste of what it feels like and we also used to do in the dojo we used to do a 
a multiple opponent attack, which you would literally just stand in the middle of a circle of like maybe four or six people and they would just attack you as and when they wanted and there'd be no warning. And that is legitimately terrifying, even though they weren't setting out to hurt me, just knowing that you don't know where it's coming from and you don't know how they're going to be attacking. That gives you a, a kind of more sort of real world sense, I think. So those, those kind of gave me a grounding. But then after that, it is mostly just work of imagination. And again, it's research. You know, how do you fight with a spear? What does it actually look like when you've got two armies fighting each other? With the Goblin Trilogy, that was a little bit easier because there are a lot of historical records. And there's a, there's a really great book called, let me find it, Infantry Warfare in the early 14th century which is absolutely brilliant and it gives you all of the contemporary sources for how the battles were fought um, and the movement of troops and stuff like that. So once you've got that, it's really just the imagination to link what it feels like to be punched in the face with an actual historical battle that you can then mush it all together until you come up with, you come out with a, a, a fight scene that feels like it could be real. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a fascinating process. And that does indeed sound terrifying having like six people come at you randomly to fight you. Yeah, definitely. Because there, there is always that one bastard who's behind you, who is always going to attack, like either when you're in the middle of defending yourself from someone else, or uh, as soon as you have finished defending yourself from someone else. It, I mean, it was a little bit like you know, like those martial arts films where they all line up to attack you one after the other so that you can defeat them. Because occasionally it would be, we would be told, don't attack until they have finished their defense of somebody else. But then other times it'd be like, no, just go for it. And that those, those were the worst because, I mean, I used to get dizzy because I was spinning around so fast trying to make sure that no one was ever behind me. But then I just became predictable because all I'm doing, you know, is either spinning to my left or to my right. I would literally just walk into an attack or something like that. So then you're trying to move around and, oh, I have deeply unfond memories of, of those sessions. But you know what? They, they were absolutely brilliant um, and they did teach me a lot. And, you know, it's, it's, a, good, it's, it's a good skill to have, I think, in life as well as in writing. I think you said that your Godblind series didn't really have monsters outside of, say, the human variety. But here you've written what's probably the most terrifying version of like this <laughs> reptilian siren that I've mm -hmm. ever seen. Uh, so you. how did you go about creating the Drowned? Or, uh, excuse me, the Holy Satatma? Um, okay, yeah. So I could be really facetious and say that I watched the creature from the Black Lagoon one too many times. But, it, you know, it, it wasn't entirely just because of that, which is a great film, by the way. But I think I, I tried to, I basically tried to think about what scares me the most in like horror films and stuff like that. And I'm like, it's the things that look almost human, but aren't. And I think that's what freaks out a lot of people. It's, it's like, this way you've got so many people who are afraid of clowns because they, they look like us, but slightly to the left of us, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's like that, what is it, Uncanny Valley? Yeah, yeah, exactly, stuff like that. So I, I wanted something that was recognizably humanoid, but also distinctly other. So things like 
the fact, you know, just the fact that they have hands. I was, I freaked myself out just with the fact that they have hands. Like in the opening chapter, when Shessa is fighting one of them, and it literally reaches out and grabs her by the ankle, and it's got a hand. And I was like, oh my god, that's horrible. <laughs> so I basically work on the premises. If it freaks me out, then hopefully it's going to freak out readers as well. So, so that was basically it. I, I wanted something that that. It was human enough to relate to, but also totally alien. And yes, it was also sort of inspired by the Greek sirens. Other than The Drowned, one of the main things that stood out to me about your new Songs of the Drowned series is, well, the titular song. So I've read books with musical magic before, but none that had something quite so ominous. So Mm. how did that idea come about? I, I want uh, because with the like with the Goblin trilogy, I didn't really use magic or monsters. I mean, there there are some things in that trilogy that that people say are quite magical, but I would say that they are given by the gods rather than being a like a magical source. But with this, I wanted to go with something that was was clearly magic because the Empire of Songs is an empire, and because of all of the ideas that empire and colonialism and cap encapsulate i wanted something that would it was a sort of a unifying magic but it also subtly controls everyone under its influence so i thought about different ways how that might happen um so things like uh, at one point i thought maybe it was going to be tattoos so like you would tattoo the magic into a person and then that way you can you can influence them slightly um but then i was like oh no because you'd probably just cut it off or you know somehow or tattoo over it or you know ruin the tattoo in some way or other but then so I thought and then I thought well what about like a cloud of magic or some sort of nebulous gas but then I was like well no because that would just blow away on the breeze and then I kind of and, and then I kind of went well what if it was musical so then it was this idea of well that means someone is constantly playing it so from there I was like well if you weren't constantly playing it how might it work which is how I came up with the idea of the singer who basically translates raw magic through the songstone and through pyramids located throughout the, envi- uh, the empire. And then from there, basically everything he thinks and feels is translated through the music. So that's why there's like a prohibition on him experiencing negativity or negative emotions or anything like that. And there's this idea of a peaceful song is a peaceful empire, but an angry song is an angry empire. And because it's like, it has this ability to influence how people think that, yeah, that, that made it as well. That made it like slightly creepy. Um, and with the links to the drowned and their music, it, it ended up being a little bit darker than I was expecting, to be honest. Not that I'm complaining at all. Yeah, it definitely has a unique sort of musical flair to it. And uh, not like saying those words, it sounds a lot happier than the story actually is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I might actually have been listening to Tangerine Dream at the time um, when I came up with it. And, And for anyone who doesn't know, Tangerine Dream are like a weird, trippy prog rock band from the late 60s and 70s. So, so yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe when you're reading it, just, uh, just, just stick on some Tangerine Dream or something and see what happens. <laughs> okay. So, uh, is that canon then that, uh, the song is actually Tangerine Dream? 
Um, uh, not necessarily. I mean, Tangerine, Tangerine Dream's the band and they've got like maybe 20 albums. So I couldn't pinpoint which one it was I was listening to when the idea came to me. But yeah, you know, weird, weird trippy prog rock was probably involved at some point in the idea's genesis, I would say. Uh, well, uh, on a different note, apparently there were some issues with Godblind, Dark Soul, and Bloodchild being shelved in the wrong age section of the library. <laughs> uh, what do you have to say to anyone thinking about doing the same with the stone knife? Uh, please don't. <laughs> um, yeah, a, um, a friend sent me a photograph of Dark Soul on, on the shelf of a bookshop in the kids section. Um, and there was actually a My Little Pony stacked on top of the <laughs> on top of the book, so it was a bit like, what the actual hell? But you know, it's it's really it's really annoying in a way because it does happen quite a lot. I know it's happened to Anna Smith Spark as well, and her books are far more grimdark than mine. Um, and it seems to be a case of people assuming that because the author has a female gendered name that they automatically write books for children, which there is absolutely nothing wrong with writing children's fiction. And it takes a huge amount of talent and dedication, but it also requires a very different focus. And, you know, you're just going to end up traumatizing children if you assume that everyone with a female gendered name writes books for kids. And you're also doing us as authors a disservice because our books aren't getting into the right hands and therefore we might not be selling as many copies, which then impacts how our publishers view us as as viable bets to to buy another series from. So it's a little bit stereotyping and it's a lot frustrating, but mostly it just means that your child is is going to be traumatized by humanoid monsters, lakes of gore, explicit sex, and way too many F-bombs if you, if you put the stone knife in there. So, you know, choice is yours. Choice is yours. If, if you want to scar your kids, go for it, but please don't. Yeah, and I'm sure we really don't need all those Goodreads reviews from those uh, 6 through 10-year-olds that might be picking up the book. <laughs> Exactly. Mommy, I learned a new word today. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. So, yeah. I mean, th there's also like um, Jay Kristoff's Nevernight series. His kept getting put into YA because, because his protagonist was like 16, I think. So they were like, oh, obviously this is a YA book. And I'm like, have you read the amount of sex in that trilogy? Oh my God, you do not want to be giving that to a 10 year old. But, yep. <laughs> you know, but he, I mean, he, apparently he, he's actually had parents have written to him in disgust saying, how dare you put this much sex and swearing and smoking into a children's book? And he's like, it's not a children's book. But, you know, pe people make, you know, I'm not, I'm not having a go at booksellers, but somebody makes the decision to put them where they put them. And I, I don't know how we address that issue aside from just, you, we just have to keep on telling them. But how does that work? Go on, a, go on a tour of every bookshop in Britain and be like, hi, yeah, you've put my book in the wrong section again. It's, you know, it, it's not viable. So yeah, it happens. You can, get, you can get a My Little Pony and genital torture if you, uh, if you go into a particular shop. In Britain, apparently. 
Yes, well, uh, hopefully uh, less of that. <laughs> uh, well, my last question, like strictly about the stone knife, is uh, not really a question at all. It's just, you know what you did. How could you? I mean, there are so many points that you could be referring to. I mean, are we talking specifically the stone knife? Well, that's uh, the thing, right? Apparently, this can apply to most of your books. I mean, it can apply to most of my books. What did I do in The Stone Knife that was particularly cruel and unusual? <laughs> I mean, I can think of at least three examples. Basically, I'm, I'm going to go with um, The Song Made Me Do It. Yep. It's not my fault. I'm, I'm controlled by the song. <laughs> <laughs> uh, careful which albums you listen to in the future. <laughs> yeah, that is very true. That is very true, actually. Um, I, I'm currently uh, I'm currently listening to a lot of um, soundtracks from TV series. I've been on like a massive C drama and K drama kick for the last kind of well for this year, most of this year actually. So yeah, and and they're really good at uh, emotional devastation. So I, I tend to get my heart ripped out by this like amazing Korean drama and then and then I buy the soundtrack to it and then cry while I'm writing. So so you know, I mean book two might be a lot more devastating. Uh, good good to have something to look forward to. <laughs> Definitely. Well, I guess speaking of looking forward, uh, what are you working on currently? I'm assuming book two slash maybe book three, uh, maybe some other projects. I know you have a novella coming out soon. Yeah. Uh, so Songs of the Drowned 2, definitely. Um, I've, I've already got a draft of that, but because of the nature of the edits that we did to the Stone Knife, I need to make some fairly substantial changes. Uh, so I'm just sort of heading back in and, and working out what I can keep and what needs to be rewritten and what needs to come out completely. I've got, yeah, I've got a Black Library novella coming out uh, next week, actually, I believe, which is uh, Age of Sigmar set. And it is all about uh, the Daughters of Cain, which anyone who knows Age of Sigmar will know that they're basically homicidal female elves. Um, who worship the the Lord of Murder. So that was a lot of fun because you basically have to take someone who is thoroughly unlikable and has a body count in the thousands and then you have to make them a sympathetic protagonist. So it was it was really interesting and it was quite challenging actually because they're not the sort of people that I would want to go and hang out with. Uh, so to really get under the skin of them was... Um, was really interesting and, and it was a lot of fun to write so yeah so we've got that coming out next week um yeah and i guess i'll say too like by the time you're listening to this episode uh, it's already available yay hooray it is yeah so it's called covens of blood uh which pretty much gives you a, a, a decent idea of of the nature of the stories and then i've got some other black library slash age of sigma stuff that i'm working on as well that uh you will probably see next year um and then there's also uh, a super secret project that i'm working on that i'm not allowed to talk about on pain of death um <laughs> so yeah so so lots i'm actually ridiculously busy which you know during lockdown i was like this is fine. You know, I need something to keep me busy and I don't have any freelance work. So at least this will pay some bills. 
And then I was like, oh shit, now I need to write like a million words in the next 12 months. It's not a million. It feels like a million. So, right. so still, yeah. still quite a bit, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, I, I basically just said yes to everything. <laughs> and, and now I'm, I'm examining my life choices, shall we say. <laughs> yes. Um, well, uh, on a slightly different note, I'm always excited to see when authors have a Patreon, especially mm. since most people tend to approach it differently. So do you care to share how you handle it? Uh, yeah, I've had it for, I think, just over 12 months now. And I've got a, a, a very small core of, of loyal followers who um, are basically paying for Christmas for me this year. So thank you so much to my Patreon supporters. And I've got three tiers set up. So I've got, I've got like a, a general what I'm working on, what, you know, life kind of update sort of thing as tier one. And then my second tier is an editing and cutscenes, sort of how to. So, um, because when I write, I tend to, I rewrite very, very heavily and I cut everything that isn't, is no longer necessary, but I always keep it just in case I can jam it into the next book or I can adapt it and stick it in and be like, hey, look, I just wrote 3,000 words, which obviously is a complete lie because all I've done is, is cut and paste them from from something else so that's quite good because some of them will be scenes that made it to the penultimate edit before the book was actually published and then were cut at the last second uh so that kind of gives readers a look at where the story might have gone or what i might do is i'll post the first draft of a scene and then the published draft of a scene and just talk through how i changed it and why i changed it uh, which people seem to think is quite useful. And then the third tier is uh, original fiction. So it will be like a short story or maybe like part one of a longer piece of work that, uh, that I'll write and then I'll, I'll sort of post the other parts over the subsequent months. So yeah, it's, it's good. It can be quite a lot of work, um, especially when I've got deadlines coming. And I did actually pause the November one I had deadlines coming up, so I didn't, I didn't do anything for the month of November. But obviously, I don't charge anyone because I haven't produced anything. So then it just gives me a bit of time off to um, get everything in place so that I can, I can start up again for December. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and I can imagine that's quite a bit of work, but it sounds really cool both from a uh, reader side of things and from a writer side of things to see how you handle all of that. Yeah, I mean, I know that... Um, at least some of my followers um, are, are purely readers, but some are also writers as well. So I always, you know, make the time to say, is this the kind of content you want? What, you know, what more would you like to see in the editing section and stuff like that? And just, you know, try and be as, try and be as helpful to people as possible because, you know, they're, they're paying for the content. So you may as well, you may as well give them what they want. And, and yeah, I mean, so when I, when I'm doing like a, when I'm, in the middle of edits, then I might, I might list some of the editorial comments that I've had from my publisher and say, you know, this is what they were asking and this is how I dealt with it. Or, you know, if, if they say, I don't understand where this storyline is going, then, you know, how do you deal with that sort of criticism and stuff like that, which I think people find useful. That not, and also it helps me work through my, um, my frustrations with my editor. <laughs> If I have any, like, <laughs> how dare you say that doesn't work? Who do you think you are? 
obviously they're my editor and they're always right. But um, yeah, sometimes you have a, a slightly emotional reaction to, uh, to some editorial comments. Yeah, I can uh, definitely imagine. Well, I'm curious, are there just any good books that you've enjoyed lately and you can recommend? Yes. Okay, so I'm currently reading Jade City by Fonda Lee, which is excellent. And I'm, I know I'm really late to the, to the Jade City party, but it is brilliant and it's so imaginative um, and I'm absolutely loving that. I've also recently finished The Order of the Pure Moon Reflected in Water by Zen Cho, uh, which was only a novella. But it's this lovely little Malaysian-inspired story of um, hijinks and found family and resistance and colonialism and stuff like that. And it kind of starts off, you think it's just going to be a nice escapist little story. And then it, it starts, you know, it starts including all these little tendrils of like deep meaning and and like emotional devastation and stuff like that and you think oh my god i did not see that coming i, I was just here for the hijinks you know um <laughs> but those are kind of the best stories because you don't see them coming so it comes out of nowhere so that's really good um and i've also recently read the perfect assassin by k.a door which was really good sort of desert inspired society where it only rains once a year and, and basically you're paid in water tokens. So you get allocated a certain number of water tokens at the, after the rains and you have to make them last a year. And if you don't, basically you have to fall on the charity of your friends because the water is an absolutely finite resource. And it's really clever because you've got people, you know, you can sort of see in the last few weeks before the rains start, you can see people getting desperate and, you know, they're like, I'm going to have like one cup of tea today. And that's, that's basically it. That's all I can afford to drink today. And it just makes for a really unique set of challenges and a society. And, and, you know, how are you willing to forego your own water in order to help out a friend and stuff like that, which is, you know, a, a really good moral question. And, and I'm, I'm always here for the morally gray answers and stuff like that. So, yeah, so those three, very good. Enjoyed them all thoroughly. Yeah, and I will say with that third one, uh, in addition to those interesting moral questions, the second book has undead camels. Mm, I know, I haven't got to the second book yet. But honestly, I was like, undead camels, I'm so there. I just need to squeeze it into my, <laughs> uh, my reading list because I, I don't think I've ever read an undead camel. I don't think I've ever even thought of the concept of an undead camel before. So um, I'm very jealous of, of Kay's uh, imagination in order to come up with that. Yeah, it was definitely a new experience for me as well. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, one thing I kind of like to ask everyone at the end is what's just something you're excited about right now? Friends debuts getting published. I'm very excited. Um, so I'm, I'm friends with uh, Shelley Parker-Chan, who is an Asian-Australian author. And her debut novel, She Who Became the Sun, is out, I think, next March, next spring sometime. And I got to read an early copy of it, and it is absolutely amazing. It's it's a kind of historical fiction, uh, historical fantasy, sorry, that is based around the founding of the Ming Dynasty, I think. And oh, 
it's so good. It's it's like emotionally devastating. It's gender queer. It's gender flipped. It's battles and intrigue and you know like palace scholars and ah, oh, it's so good. So I'm really excited that people are going to be reading that so that I can scream at them about it. And I'm also I've also recently read E.J. Beaton's The Counselor, which is also due out I think next spring, and that is also absolutely excellent. So I'm very excited for uh, new books from friends. Yes. And I will say I did just score an advanced reader copy of The Counselor. So I'm looking forward to digging into oh, that. Oh, great. You'll have to let me know what you think of it. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I've heard great things. Uh, and I mean, obviously, the description sounds fantastic. Mm, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for stopping by the Fantasy Inn, Anna. This has been such a lovely chat. And at the risk of revealing just how much of a geek I am, I want to make sure I close this out properly. So under the song. Hey, under the song, Travis. Thank you so much for having me on. It has been, uh, it's been great fun and lovely to talk to you. And, you know, stay away from uh, large bodies of water and uh, reptilian humanoids. Always wise <laughs> advice, I find. I will do my best. No promises. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You can find Anna Stevens on Twitter and Instagram as Anna Smith Writes or at our website, anna-stevens.com. The Stone Knife was a gripping read from start to finish. Come for the genital torture, stay for the cannibalism, and enjoy the emotional trauma along the way. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server where you can hang out with us in real time and find more books than you'll ever be able to read. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon or take a minute of your time to leave us a review online. It really means the world. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time. <laughs>